0: Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the freedom trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 208, Ghost Stories. Hi, I'm Jake. In honor of Halloween, I'm going to be sharing some of my favorite Boston ghost stories this week. From haunted houses and inexplicable premonitions recorded by Cotton and Increase Mather in the years leading up to the Salem Witchist area to Nathaniel Hawthorne encountering his friend in the reading room at the Athenaeum for weeks after the friend's death, to the apparition that only seems to appear in Boston's most venerable gay bar when only one person is there to see it. This week's episode will cover nearly 400 years of paranormal claims. Maybe these stories will convince some of you, but even a skeptic like me can glean insight from the fantastic stories about the people who believe them. But before we start telling ghost stories, it's time for the final edition of the Boston Book Club and our upcoming historical event. If you're wondering why I'm calling this the final edition of the Boston Book Club, check out my fourth anniversary bonus episode that just came out. The TLDR version is that I'm going to streamline the show starting in November, cutting out the weekly book club and upcoming event segments, and I'm going to move the show to a -a twice-a-month schedule instead of weekly. If you want to know why, the bonus episode can fill in the details. So with that said, I have two picks for the Boston Book Club this week. First up is a fun activity book called The Greater Boston Challenge that was recently given to me as a gift. You know that it's always impossible to find a gift for the guy who has everything. And when it comes to books about Boston, I'm a guy who has everything. Yet on a recent camping trip, a good friend pulled out this slim volume and I was surprised to see it was a book that I hadn't come across before. This little book is full of puzzles that test your knowledge about Boston. There are fun quizzes about local history, sports, crimes, neighborhoods, businesses, and other topics, with each topical chapter containing a 75-question quiz and a bonus crossword puzzle. You can test yourself against the book, or, even better, challenge your friends to go head-to-head. It was written by Gordon and Ann Matheson, who also created a board game about Cape Cod. A Quincy native, Gordon has also written 11 volumes of mostly young adult fiction, most of which are set in the Boston area. I also thought that the final edition of the Boston Book Club would be a good opportunity to showcase some of our competition. When Nikki and I first started Hub History four years ago, we did it in part because we wanted to listen to a show about Boston history, and none existed. Oh my, how times change. Now there are at least half a dozen podcasts about Boston and Boston history, plus a couple more series that don't exactly count as podcasts. I want to run down some of what's available out there and include a couple that have popped up in the book club before. First up, though, we have a few that have not been mentioned on the show before. Revere House Radio is, as it sounds, produced by the folks at the Paul Revere House Historic Site. They've released about 15 episodes since starting up this May, with each one focusing on some facet of Paul Revere's life, from his apprenticeships, to his career, to the details of his famous ride. Along a similar line, the folks at Revolution 250 have recently started their own podcast to celebrate the ongoing 250th anniversary by highlighting historic sites, reenactors, and historians who keep renewing and refreshing the historical memory of the revolution. They just passed episode 7 after starting the show in early September. Then there's Old Dirty Boston, an offshoot of the blog by the same name. Like us, they're a generalist show, but they focus on more recent history, covering everything from busing, to the Combat Zone, to the Winter Hill Gang. Like us, they've been around for a few years, racking up about 50 episodes since they started in late 2018. Last Scene is a podcast on a whole different scale. Podcasters associated with small organizations, like the Revere House, and independent podcasters, like Old Dirty Boston and me, get by on shoestring budgets, without much more than a USB mic and a blanket for sound treatment. Last Seen was a partnership between WBUR and the Boston Globe, which pretty much means they had access to all the resources us indies dream about and they use those resources to a good end, that being a ten-part series breaking down the Isabella Stewart Gardner museum heist in detail, from the mechanics of the robbery, to the personalities involved in the investigation, to the leads that make the case still seem tantalizingly close to cracking. I want to briefly mention two shows that have been Boston Book Club selections in the past. After a seven-month hiatus, The Channel Story just released their tenth episode. As they've been teasing since the beginning, this episode begins to explain how the beloved South Boston Rock Club was targeted by, and then taken over, by the Boston Mob. And even though it's not a history show, my favorite Boston-themed podcast is Greater Boston. In this fictional story set in a slightly off-kilter version of Boston, the streets are permanently sticky from the molasses flood, terrorists wield Tea Party tea and hot Boston baked beans. And dark forces gather in the abandoned amusement park at Wonderland. After a few initial episodes where the various plot lines seem to branch out in all directions, the show evolved into a tightly interwoven story following multiple main characters, with Ernest Leeds deeply concerned with social justice. They're on hiatus right now as the writers put together the fourth season, which means that you have time to go back and catch up from season one. And finally, let's talk about two series that don't really count as podcasts. Over at the Old North Church Historic Site, education manager TJ Todd has been making a series of videos on their YouTube channel called 99% Sure. The seven episodes so far are generally about five to seven minutes long, and they cover different aspects of the history of the building, the crypts, and of course, Paul Revere's famous ride. As a video series, 99% sure isn't really a podcast, but it's pretty darn close. Similarly, Season 3 of a show called Fiasco is available only on the Luminary app. I generally don't support Luminary because I think their practice of promoting app-exclusive shows is destructive to the entire podcast industry. This third season of Fiasco, however, covers the important topic of desegregation and the busing crisis in Boston in all the depth of a seven-episode season of a well-funded corporate audio series. I thought it'd be fun to highlight all these different perspectives for the final Boston Book Club. Boston History Podcasts are a big enough tent for all of us. And for our upcoming event this week, I have a partnership between the History Project and Historic New England. On November 12th, they're teaming up to present a program called Looking for the First Gay American Novel, a forgotten book by Sarah Orne Jewett. You might remember Sarah Orne Jewett's name from our episode about so-called Boston marriages, where 19th century women engaged in long-term, deeply committed monogamous relationships that may or may not have been sexual. Jewett and Annie Adams Fields lived together on Charles Street at the foot of Beacon Hill and they hosted the most amazing, star-studded salon nights that you can possibly imagine. The History Project is the premier New England organization cataloging and recording the LGBTQ history of Boston and beyond. Working with Historic New England, they're turning to Sarah Orne Jewett in their search for the first gay American novel. Here's the description from the Historic New England website. The popularity of James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room... Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City and Hanya Yanagihara's recent hit A Little Life indicates the profound connection people feel with LGBTQ plus fiction. But who authored the first gay American novel? Scholars have proposed origins for the tradition in Margaret Sweat's Ethel's Love Life and Bayard Taylor's Joseph and His Friend, A Tale of Pennsylvania. However, Professor Don James McLaughlin of the University of Tulsa makes the case in this virtual talk that A Marsh Island, a little-known 1885 novel serialized in The Atlantic by Sarah Orne Jewett, is significant for being the first novel to explore major, now-familiar facets of a burgeoning modern gay American consciousness. The talk will begin at 5 p.m. on Thursday, November 12th. Tickets will be priced on a sliding scale starting at $25 and going down from there, according to need. I'll include the link you need to buy a ticket, as well as links to the Greater Boston Challenge and all the Boston podcasts I featured this week in the show notes. Just go to hubhistory.com 208 for details. Before I move on with the show, I just want to thank our Patreon sponsors for sticking with us through this transition. With your continued support, I hope to keep making a high-quality show, just one that comes out a little less frequently. Moving to a twice-monthly schedule should ease some of the stress behind putting out the show, but it unfortunately won't change much with the expenses involved in making Hub History. We'll still be on the hook for podcast media hosting, web hosting and security, and research fees, though we should see a slight break in the cost of audio processing and transcription. So thanks again for sticking with us as we shake things up, and hopefully we can recruit a few more sponsors during this transition. If you aren't yet sponsoring the show and you'd like to, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And now it's time for this week's main topic. In the earliest days of English colonization in Boston, the Puritans believed that the devil was just as real as you or me walking among the houses at night and looking for a likely soul. Because the devil was a constant presence, apparitions were common. Puritan minister Increase Mather wrote a volume called Remarkable Providences as a book-length argument from Christian doctrine for the existence of witchcraft. The book is full of strange and horrifying experiences, taken as evidence, among which was the story of a man whose house turned against him. It sounds like something out of a low-budget horror movie. Perhaps Paranormal Activity, Puritan Edition. It begins, As there have been several persons vexed with evil spirits, so diverse houses have been woefully haunted by them. In the year 1679, the house of William Morse was strangely disquieted by a demon. It all started on December 3rd, when Morse and his wife woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of something landing on their house, saying that it sounded like branches or stones rattling on the roof. William got up and looked out the window, but there was nothing to see. The couple went back to sleep and then woke up again a few hours later to the sound of a hog. Sure enough, when they got up, there was a hog in the house, but they opened the door, which had been shut fast, and the hog ran out. Nothing too supernatural there, at least so far. Less than a week later, the situation began to escalate. On December 8th, in the morning, there were five great stones and bricks by an invisible hand thrown in at the west end of the house while the man's wife was making the bed. The bedstead was lifted up from the floor, and the bedstaff flung out the window, and a cat was hurled at her. A long staff danced up and down the chimney, a burnt brick, and a piece of weatherboard were thrown in at the window. On the same day, the long staff but now spoken of was hanged up by a line and swung to and fro. The man's wife laid it in the fire, but she could not hold it there, inasmuch as it would forcibly fly out. Yet, after much ado, with joint strength, they made it to burn. A shingle flew from the window, though nobody near it. Many sticks came in at the same place. Only one of these was so scragged that it could enter the hole but a little way, whereupon the man pushed it out. A great rail likewise was thrust in at the window, so as to break the glass. Things only get weirder from there. Furniture floated unaccountably through the air, with a chair landing in the middle of the dinner table one night and spoiling the family's meal. Things in the house went unaccountably missing, One key from a ring of three would disappear, while the other two floated around the house, jingling loudly. An inkpot disappeared as Mr. Morse was using it to write. Knitting needles disappeared from the knitting and reappeared in the bedclothes. For a week, the entire family was plagued by ashes blowing out of the fireplace into their eyes, their hair and clothes, and into their food as they tried to eat. For another week, they were pelted with cow manure by an unseen hand spoiling the milk as they milked their cows, coming through the windows and spoiling their dinners, and being flung at them in the fields and streets. The family's young son seemed to be the greatest sufferer of these afflictions, with the account by Mather continuing, On the 18th of December, he, sitting by his grandfather, was hurried into great motions, and the man thereupon took him and made him stand between his legs, but the chair danced up and down and had liked to cast both man and boy into the fire. And the child was afterwards flung about in such a manner as that they feared his brains would have been beaten out. And in the evening he was tossed as a four, and the man tried the project of holding him, but ineffectually. The lad was soon put to bed, and they presently heard a huge noise and demanded what was the matter. And he answered that his bedstead had leaped up and down. And the man and wife went up and at first found all quiet, but before they'd been there long they saw the board by his bed trembling by him, and the bedclothes flying off him. The latter they laid on immediately, but they were no sooner on than off, so they took him out of his bed for quietness. Today we describe all sorts of causes to these strange afflictions. Was an enemy of some sort throwing the bricks and cow patties at the family? Were the visions of flying furniture occurring in a lucid dream, or was the damage to the house caused by a sleepwalker? Could the boy's violent movements around the room have been a simple prank? In the Puritan world of Increase Mather, and William Morse for that matter, there could only be one explanation for events like this. The devil himself. The Elder Reverend Mather relates how the haunting of the Morse house was brought to an end. Neither were there many words spoken by Satan all this time. Only once, having put out their light, they heard a scraping on the boards, and then a piping and drumming on them, which was followed with a voice, singing, Revenge, revenge, sweet is revenge. And they, being well terrified with it, called upon God. The issue of which was that suddenly, with a mournful note, there were six times over uttered such expressions as, Alas! Me knock no more, me knock no more. And now, all ceased. Suspicion among the neighbors fell on Mrs. Morse, who in whispers was accused of being a witch. She's lucky that these events, or at least the accounts of them, didn't happen a few years later, when whispered rumors of witchcraft were enough to get a woman hauled before the court of Oyer and Terminer to argue for her life. Still, it was publications like the Remarkable Providences and men like Increase Mather that fed the fires of the witch hysteria, leading to the deaths of many innocent people. Increase Mather's account of the haunted Morse House was published over a year before the tragedy of the Salem witch trials. A year after the trials began, with dozens of people in jail and awaiting their fates, Cotton Mather, the son of Increase and also a powerful Puritan minister, published... Wonders of the Invisible World. It was framed as a historical account of the trials that have recently concluded, but it was far from a balanced narrative. The younger Mather combed through the records of the court of Oyer and Terminer, and in the end published an account that only presented the prosecution's side. As a close ally of the state, and one of the leading voices in arranging the trials that left 20 people dead, the book was Cotton Mather's defense of the trials and executions and his argument that witchcraft was real. In Wonders of the Invisible World, Cotton Mather doesn't just jump straight into the witch trials. Instead, he starts with a story that would have been deeply shocking at the time. It was titled, A Narrative of an Apparition Which a Gentleman in Boston Had of His Brother, Just Then Murdered in London. It begins... It was on the 2nd of May, in the year 1687, that a most ingenious, accomplished, and well-disposed gentleman, Mr. Joseph Beacon by name, about five o'clock in the morning, as he lay, whether sleeping or waking he could not say, but judged the latter of them, had a view of his brother, then at London, although he was now himself at our Boston, distanced from him a thousand leagues. So Joseph Beacon was asleep in Boston, Massachusetts, and he had a vision of his brother in London. "'all the way in Old England. "'This his brother appeared unto him "'in the morning about five o'clock at Boston, "'having on him a Bengal gown, which he usually wore, "'with a napkin tied about his head. "'His countenance was very pale, ghastly, deadly, "'and he had a bloody wound on one side of his forehead. "'Brother,' says the affrighted Joseph. "'Brother,' answered the apparition. "'Said Joseph, "'What's the matter, brother?' how came you here? The apparition replied, brother, I've been most barbarously and injuriously butchered by a debauched drunken fellow whom I never did any wrong in my life. Okay, all the way from far away London, the brother appeared to Joseph, showed off a fresh head wound, and said that he'd been the victim of a random assault by a drunk in the streets of London. The apparition of the brother is then alleged to have given very particular details of the perpetrator's plans to flee the country and come to Massachusetts, saying that he had changed his name and giving the exact ports by which he might try to effect an immigration. To this, the specter said, I would pray you on the first arrival of either of these to get an order from the governor to seize the person whom I have now described, and then do you indict him for the murder of your brother. I'll stand by you and proved the indictment. And so he vanished. Joseph was understandably shaken up by this dream or vision or whatever it was, but he went on about his normal business for a little less than two months. All this while, Mr. Beacon had no advice of anything amiss attending his brother then in England. But about the latter end of June following, he understood by the common ways of communication that the April before, his brother going in haste by night to call a coach for a lady, met a fellow then in drink, with his doxy in his hand. Some way or other, the fellow thought himself affronted with the hasty passage of this beacon, and immediately ran into the fireside of a neighboring tavern, from whence he fetched out a firefork, wherewith he grievously wounded beacon in the skull, even in that very part where the apparition showed his wound. After almost two months had passed since he saw the vision, Beacon got a letter from England saying that back in April, a month before the vision, his brother had bumped into someone while rushing to call a cab for his girlfriend. That someone took offense and bashed him in the head with a fireplace poker, leaving a wound exactly where the apparition had been seen with a bloody napkin tied around its head. And that's not even the spooky part. Mather's account continues. Of this wound, he languished, until he died on the 2nd of May, about 5 o'clock in the morning, at London. If you recall, May the 2nd at 5 a.m. is exactly the moment when Joseph Beacon saw his vision. In a world before time zones, that was an amazing coincidence. At the very moment of his death, over 3,000 miles away, Joseph's brother not only appeared before him in a vision, but also offered to stand by him and prove the indictment. That is, to provide the very spectral evidence that had so controversially led to 20 executions just a few months before. Moving into an era when spirits and apparitions were not taken quite so literally, we have a ghost sighting from the 1770s. Later on, Benjamin Russell would go on to be a Continental soldier, and probably the most famous moment of his military career was serving as one of the guards who escorted spy John Andre to his execution. After the war, he published the newspaper The Columbian Sentinel in Boston for 40 years, exercising the trade he had learned as an apprentice to revolutionary newspaperman Isaiah Thomas. Back in those apprentice days, sometime before Russell's father died in 1778, young Benjamin saw a ghost. Or so he thought. In an 1850 book about the American newspaper business, Joseph Tinker Buckingham published a profile of Benjamin Russell and the Sentinel, where he related the story as if it was told to him, writing, I have heard Russell relate many anecdotes of his boyhood, of which the following is one, and, as near as can be recollected, in his own words. Then, it continues in Russell's voice. It was part of my duty, as an assistant in the domestic affairs of the family, to have the care of the cow. One evening, after it was quite dark, I was driving the cow to her pasturage, the common. Passing by the burial ground adjoining the stone chapel, meaning the King's Chapel burying ground, I saw several lights that appeared to be springing from the earth among the graves and immediately sinking again to the ground, or expiring. To my young imagination, these lights could be nothing but ghosts. I left the cow to find her own way to the common, or wherever else she pleased, and ran home at my utmost speed. When he recounted the story to Buckingham much later, Russell was an old man, a veteran, someone who had seen death. When he was younger, however, he had yet to see much of life and death. I like to imagine that his ghost story was inspired by the Boston Massacre, which would have happened when Benjamin Russell was about nine years old. Whatever the inspiration, Buckingham recalled what had happened after he saw this mysterious apparition in the King's Chapel burying ground. Having told my father the cause of my fright as well as I was able while in such a state of terror and agitation, he took me by the hand and led me directly to the spot where the supposed ghosts were still leaping and playing their pranks, near the surface of the ground. My hair rose on end and seemed to lift my very hat from my head. My flesh was chilled through to my very bones. I trembled so that I could scarcely walk. Still, my father continued rapidly marching towards the spot that inspired me with so much terror. When lo, there was a sexton up to his shoulders in a grave, throwing out as he proceeded in digging bones and fragments of rotten coffins. The phosphorus in the decaying wood... Blended with a peculiar state of the atmosphere, presented the appearance that had completely unstrung my nerves and terrified me beyond description. Once upon a time, when I was about 12 years old and away at summer camp, I discovered a patch of glow in the dark Indian pipes. You know, the weird white flowers that grow in the deep forest, but kind of look like something that should be growing in a cave. We were sleeping out under the stars one night, and I looked over and saw dozens of the waxy blooms glowing green in the darkness of night. Upon investigation in the daylight, they turned out to be growing out of an old, rotten log that must have been loaded with natural phosphorescence, causing them to glow. Ben Russell adds, I was never afterwards troubled with the fear of ghosts. Me neither, Ben. Me neither. Another Chilling Tale, set in 1770, was briefly the most influential ghost story in America, influencing everyone from Nathaniel Hawthorne to Herman Melville to a 1987 episode of the Saturday morning cartoon The Real Ghostbusters. The legend says that Peter Rugg was a resident of Middle Street in Boston, today's Hanover Street in the North End, that he had a terrible temper, and that his language was so profane that when he began cussing up a blue streak, his proper powdered wig would rise straight up off his head in an attempt to get away. One morning in the late autumn, probably about this time of year, maybe on a night just like tonight, Rugg and his ten-year-old daughter Jenny loaded up their two-wheeled open carriage or chaise and headed out to visit Concord for the day. As they started for home that evening, a violent thunderstorm caught up with them just as the night fell. In the original telling of the tale, the father and daughter stopped at a friend's house in Cambridge or Arlington as the storm worsened. At dark, he stopped at Monotomy, now West Cambridge, at the door of Mr. Cutter, a friend of his who urged him to tarry the night. On Ruggs declining to stop, Mr. Cutter urged him vehemently. Why, Mr. Ruggs, said Cutter, the storm is overwhelming you. The night is exceedingly dark. Your little daughter will perish. You're in an open chase, and the tempest is increasing. Let the storm increase, said Rugg, with a fearful oath. I will see home tonight in spite of the last tempest, or may I never see home? At these words, he gave the whip to his high-spirited horse, and disappeared in a moment. But Peter Rugg did not reach home that night, nor the next. Nor, when he became a missing man, could he ever be traced beyond Mr. Cutter's in monotony. Be careful what you wish for. Ruggs vowed to see home tonight or never again see home would be fulfilled. The legend says that he was cursed to roam the highways and byways of New England forevermore. For all eternity, he would look for the way home, look for Boston, but he would never find it. For a long time after, on every dark and stormy night, The wife of Peter Rugg would fancy she heard the crack of a whip, and the fleet tread of a horse, and the rattling of a carriage passing her door. The neighbors, too, heard the same noises, and some said they knew it was Rugg's horse. The tread on the pavement was perfectly familiar to them. This occurred so repeatedly that at length the neighbors watched with lanterns, and saw the real Peter Rugg, with his own horse and chaise, and the child sitting beside him pass directly before his own door. His head turned toward his house, and himself making every effort to stop his horse, but in vain. According to this account, the chaise matching Peter Ruggs was seen one night in Hartford, the next night in the White Mountains, and on the next in Rhode Island. At every stop, he was described as riding at reckless speed, with his daughter curled up next to him. He would ask any fellow traveler who acknowledged his presence for directions to Boston and he was always incredulous that he wasn't in the right place. One witness, who claimed to have spoken with Peter Rugg many times, recounted, He is a famous traveler, held in light esteem by all in-holders, for he never stops to eat, drink, or sleep. I wonder why the government does not employ him to carry the mail. Aye, that is a thought bright only on one side. How long would it take in that case to send a letter to Boston? To my knowledge, been more than 20 years traveling to that place. He looks as though he never ate, drank, or slept, and his child looks older than himself. And he looks like time broken off from eternity and anxious to gain a resting place. As for his horse, he looks fatter and gayer and shows more animation and courage than he did 20 years ago. The last time Ruggs spoke to me, he inquired how far it was to Boston. I told him just one hundred miles. Why, said he, how can you deceive me so? It's cruel to mislead a traveler. I've lost my way. Pray direct me to the nearest way to Boston. I repeated it was one hundred miles. How can you say so, said he. I was told last evening it was but fifty, and I've traveled all night. But, said I, you are now traveling from Boston. You must turn back. Alas, said he, it is all turned back. Boston shifts with the wind and plays all around the compass. One man tells me it is to the east, another to the west, and the guideposts, too, they all point the wrong way. But will you not stop and rest, said I. You seem wet and weary. Yes, said he, it has been foul weather since I left home. Stop, then, and refresh yourself. I must not stop. I must reach home tonight if possible, though I think you must be mistaken in the distance to Boston. He then gave the reins to his horse, which he restrained with difficulty and disappeared in a moment. The narrator himself encountered the figure of Peter Rugg on a stormy night as he got ready to check into a Hartford hotel. After hearing stories of the legendary coachman for so long, he vowed he would speak to the man so as the chase passed, he held up a hand in greeting. Rugg reined in his horse and came to an impatient stop. Sir, said I, may I be so bold as to inquire if you are not Mr. Rugg, for I think I have seen you before. My name is Peter Rugg, said he. I have unfortunately lost my way. I am wet and weary, and I will take it kindly of you to direct me to Boston. You live in Boston, do you? And in what street? In Middle Street. When did you leave Boston? I cannot tell precisely. It seems a considerable time. But how did you and your child become so wet? It's not rained here today. It has just rained a heavy shower up the river. But I shall not reach Boston tonight if I tarry. Would you advise me to take the old road or the turnpike? Why, the old road is 117 miles, and the turnpike is 97. How can you say so? You impose on me. It's wrong to trifle with a traveler. You know it's but 40 miles from Newburyport to Boston. But this is not Newburyport. This is Hartford. Do not deceive me, sir. Is not this the town Newburyport, and the river that I have been following the Merrimack? No, sir. This is Hartford, and the river is the Connecticut. He wrung his hands and looked incredulous. Have the rivers, too, changed their courses, as the cities have changed places? But see, the clouds are gathering in the south, and we shall have a rainy night. Oh, that fatal oath! Ah, that fatal oath! With that, he drove his horse off into the night and into history. The story of Peter Lugg was originally serialized in 1824 in the New England magazine, published by none other than Joseph Tinker Buckingham, who also related the story of Benjamin Russell's 1770 haunting. It was written by William Austin, who was featured as one of the duelists in our episode about an unusual political duel fought between a Federalist and a Democratic-Republican in 1806. The rug story spread so widely and was repeated so many times that many came to believe that it was an old, traditional New England tale. If people were aware of the publication by William Austin, they thought he had simply written down a story that had been previously handed down in oral tradition. The tale was repeated and adapted by many other authors, most prominently Nathaniel Hawthorne. As part of his 1842 collection, Mosses for the Old Man's, he included the short story, A Virtuoso's Collection. In it, he describes a visit to a fictional new museum that was opening in Boston containing the collection of oddities curated by the titular virtuoso. Among the collection was the wolf that ate Little Red Riding Hood, the albatross from the Rime of the Ancient Mariner, the serpent that tempted Eve, the raven that inspired Edgar Allan Poe, and dozens of other legendary, literary, or downright extinct creatures. The story is told in the first person. As the narrator takes in the Museum of Mythical Animals, he slowly gets acquainted with the museum's mysterious doorkeeper. Three shillings Massachusetts tenor, said he. No, wait. I mean half a dollar, as you reckon these days. While searching my pocket for the coin, I glanced at the doorkeeper. The marked character and individuality of whose aspect encouraged me to expect something not quite in the ordinary way. He wore an old-fashioned greatcoat, much faded, within which his meager person was so completely enveloped that the rest of his attire was indistinguishable. But his visage was remarkably wind-flushed, sunburnt, and weather-worn, and had a most unique, nervous, and apprehensive expression. It seemed as if this man had some all-important object in view some point of deepest interest to be decided, some momentous question to ask, mighty but hope for a reply. After viewing all the items of interest in the museum, the narrator takes stock of the doorkeeper, and soon learns that he is also part of the collection. Methinks a shadow would have made a fitting doorkeeper to such a museum, said I. Although indeed, yonder figure has something strange and fantastic about him which suits well enough with many of the impressions which I have received here. Pray, who is he? While speaking, I gazed more scrutinizingly than before at the antiquated presence of the person who had admitted me, and who still sat on his bench with the same restless aspect, and dim, confused, questioning anxiety that I had noticed on my first entrance. At this moment he looked eagerly towards us, and, half starting from his seat, addressed me. I beseech you, kind sir, he said in a cracked, melancholy tone. Have pity on the most unfortunate man in the world. For heaven's sake, answer me a single question. Is this the town of Boston? You have recognized him now, said the virtuoso. It is Peter Rugg, the missing man. I chanced to meet him the other day, still in search of Boston, and conducted him hither. And as he could not succeed in finding his friends, I have taken him into my service as doorkeeper. He is somewhat too apt to ramble, but otherwise a man of trust and integrity. Peter Rugg, the virtuoso's doorman, isn't the only ghost one might stumble across in Nathaniel Hawthorne's writings. In another famous literary haunting, he recorded a ghostly encounter at the Boston Athenaeum. The date is a bit uncertain, because the story was not among his published works. Instead, it was part of a story he told the family of John Pemberton Haywood, the American consul in Liverpool. Hawthorne stayed with the family while he was visiting England, and he entertained them with stories like this one. Then he wrote it down at their request. Only after his death was the story uncovered and published, first as a newspaper serial and then in his collected stories. Probably in the 1830s, Hawthorne was a member of the Boston Athenaeum, a private library at the top of Beacon Hill. He visited the library nearly daily, taking his place among the regulars who gathered in the reading room every day, poring over the newspapers in the comfortable, leather-upholstered and overstuffed silence. Among the regulars was the Reverend Dr. Thaddeus Mason Harris. The Unitarian minister at First Church in Dorchester, a Harvard graduate, and the author of The Natural History of the Bible. In Hawthorne's description, he was very far advanced in life, not less than eighty years old, and probably more, and he resided, I think, at Dorchester, a suburban village in the immediate vicinity of Boston. He was a small, withered, infirm but brisk old gentleman with snow-white hair, a somewhat stooping figure, but yet a remarkable alacrity of movement. I remember it was in the street that I first noticed him. The doctor was plodding along with the staff, but turned smartly about on being addressed by the gentleman who was with me, and responded with a good deal of vivacity. After seeing the old man in the reading room every day, Hawthorne began to regard him as part of the library landscape so it didn't seem unusual when, as he later wrote, one day especially, about noon, as was generally his hour, I am perfectly certain that I had seen this figure of old Dr. Harris and taken my customary note of him, although I remember nothing in his appearance at all different from what I had seen on many previous occasions. But that very evening a friend said to me, Did you hear that old Dr. Harris is dead? No, I said very quietly. And it cannot be true, for I saw him at the Athenaeum today. You must be mistaken, rejoined my friend. He is certainly dead, and confirmed the fact with such special circumstances that I could no longer doubt it. Now, of course, our Mr. Hawthorne was keeping an eye out for the departed Mr. Harris, and it wouldn't be long until he was seen again. The next day, as I ascended the steps of the Athenaeum, I remember thinking within myself, well... I shall never see old Dr. Harris again. With this thought in my mind, as I opened the door to the reading room, I glanced toward the spot in the chair where Dr. Harris usually sat. And there, to my astonishment, sat the gray, infirm figure of the deceased doctor, reading the newspaper as was his wont. His own death must have been recorded that very morning in that very newspaper. From that time, for a long time thereafter, for weeks at least, and I know not but for months, I used to see the figure of Dr. Harris quite as frequently as before his death. It grew to be so common that at length I regarded the venerable defunct no more than any of the other old fogies who basked before the fire and dozed over the newspapers. After some undefined period of time, Hawthorne became convinced that the old reverend was attempting to strike up a conversation from the other side of the veil. Unfortunately for him, Hawthorne wrote, The ghost had shown the bad judgment common among the spiritual brotherhood, both as regarded the place of the interview and the person whom he had selected as the recipient of his communications. In the reading room of the Athenaeum, conversation is strictly forbidden, and I could not have addressed the apparition without drawing the instant notice and indignant frowns of the slumberous old gentleman around me. I myself, too, at that time was as shy as any ghost, and followed the ghost's rule never to speak first. And what an absurd figure should I have made, solemnly and awfully addressing what must have appeared in the eyes of all the rest of the company as an empty chair. Like a bad romance, the two figures made lingering eye contact across the library for weeks, or maybe months. But eventually, all things must come to an end. After a long while of this strange intercourse, if such it can be called... I remember, once at least, I know not but oftener, a sad, wistful, disappointed gaze which the ghost fixed upon me from beneath his spectacles. A melancholy look of helplessness, which, if my heart had not been as hard as a paving stone, I could hardly have withstood. But I did withstand it, and I think I saw him no more after this last appealing look which still dwells in my memory as perfectly as while my own eyes were encountering the dim and bleared eyes of the ghost. And whenever I recall this strange passage of my life, I see the small, old, withered figure of Dr. Harris, sitting in his accustomed chair, the Boston Post in his hand, his spectacles shoved upwards and gazing at me as I closed the door of the reading room, with that wistful, appealing, hopeless, helpless look. It is too late now. His grave has been grass-grown this and many a year, and I hope he has found rest in it without any aid from me. A wonderfully creepy story, and appropriate to the season, but Hawthorne's writing was full of references to the supernatural, like the short story The Grey Champion, which incorporated the legend of the Angel of Hadley, which we talked about in our episode about the 1689 uprising in Boston, or The Virtuosos Collection, which we just heard about. While the story is sometimes presented as proof of a haunting at the Athenaeum, the content of the story and the context of its creation make it seem more like a good campfire story that Hawthorne embellished a bit by writing it in the first person. Far from the real and menacing presence of the devil found in writings by the Mathers, this was good, clean, fun. Perhaps the most persistent ghost story in Boston is The Legend of the Lady in Black. According to this tale, a Lieutenant Andrew Lanier of Georgia was among the many Confederate soldiers and politicians imprisoned at Fort Warren on Boston Harbor in 1862. Learning of his fate, his wife Melanie made her way to Boston, cut her hair short, donned men's clothing, and infiltrated Georgia's island. She signaled her husband and he lowered a rope to allow her to climb in through one of the loopholes. She had brought a pistol and a pickaxe. The plan was to tunnel into the fort's arsenal, arm the prisoners, and overpower the garrison. Unfortunately for them, the noise of the digging alerted the guards. When they rushed in to arrest the conspirators, Melanie sprang out with her pistol drawn. In the confusion, there was a misfire, or perhaps a ricochet or some other accident. Her bullet struck her own husband, and he fell dead. She was sentenced to hang as a Confederate spy, and in her grief, her only request was that she be allowed to dress in mourning for her husband. Accordingly, a long black gown and veil were procured, and she wore them to the gallows on George's Island for her execution. Well into the 20th century, soldiers and visitors to the fort would claim to see the apparition of a woman in black roaming the parapets or stalking through the basements under the casemates. This story is complete bunk. There are no recorded escape attempts from Fort Warren prior to 1863. And very importantly, no prisoner, male or female, was ever executed at Fort Warren. In fact, the only woman executed as a spy during the Civil War was Mary Surratt, who was hanged for her role in the conspiracy to assassinate President Lincoln. However, the legend of the Lady in Black was inspired by a true story, the story of the most successful escape from Fort Warren. One Confederate captain named J.W. Alexander would later account how he and an accomplice escaped from Fort Warren in 1863 and very nearly made it to freedom in Canada. Four of us determined to escape. Many plans were suggested and discussed, but none seemed feasible. Indeed, situated as we were on an island, and strictly guarded day and night, with sentinels stationed in front of our doors, confined within solid masonry constructed to resist the shot from the heaviest guns, it seemed quite impossible to escape. And yet, the escape was easily accomplished. In the basement under the room in which we were confined was a pump where we obtained our water, and in the outer wall of this basement were two openings called musketry loopholes. These were something over six feet high, two or three feet wide at the inside of the wall and gradually sloping to a point, so that at the outer side of the wall there were only a little over seven inches wide. One day while bathing, the thought struck me that I could get through this hole. Captain Alexander found that if he stripped naked, then turned his head as if he was looking over his shoulder, he could squeeze through the gap. It took three attempts for him to get off the island. Outside the walls of the fort, the conspirators discovered that it would be easy to evade the Union sentinels. As the guards walked toward one another, the Confederates would lie still in the island's tall grass. When the sentinels met and turned to walk away from one another, they would crawl forward until they were over the seawall. They would then lie still in the water, with their heads propped on the base of the seawall and their bodies hidden underwater. The first time out, they realized that there were no boats they could easily steal, and ended up sneaking back to their cells. The second time, they took along two Confederate sailors who were strong swimmers. They repeated the process, and the two sailors swam to another island to find a boat. They never came back. The third time proved to be a charm for Alexander. This time, he and one accomplice went into the water themselves. They found a wooden target used for riflery practice, and used it as a float to help them swim across the narrows and out to Boston Light. There, they stole a small boat, but by the time they made it back to Georges island, the sun had come up, and their remaining two accomplices had been captured. Turning north, they sailed their small craft toward the main coast, hoping to eventually make it to neutral New Brunswick. Along the way, they went ashore at a lonely house near Rye Beach, New Hampshire. The laconic New Englander they found listened calmly as the two naked men with southern accents explained how they came to be in a small boat with cut anchor lines off the coast of New Hampshire. We told him that we had sailed out from Portsmouth for a lark, and had gone in bathing, and while in the water our clothes had blown overboard, and asked him to get us some clothes if he could, and bring us some water and something to eat. He went on shore and soon returned with some old clothes a good supply of plain food, some tobacco, and a small bottle of cherry brandy. I am satisfied he knew what we were, but we said nothing except to thank him for his kindness. On the third day, a revenue cutter found them and quickly returned them to Fort Warren. Two decades after the Civil War, the Boston Globe printed a ghost story that took place on Mission Hill. Supposedly a death had taken place, quote, some time ago, in an orchard on what was then called Parker's Hill. In the story, a distraught man committed suicide by hanging himself from the branch of an apple tree in one of the many orchards that Roxbury was duly famous for in those days. The neighborhood swirled with tales of strange sounds and ghostly figures among the trees, and the Globe pointed out that as the years rolled by, there wasn't a soul in Roxbury who didn't claim to have seen something spooky on Parker Hill. One would tell you that he saw the figure of a man swaying to and fro, as if gently impelled by the wind. He could identify the tree as the same as that upon which the suicide had given up the ghost. Another would tell of a man clad in deep black, who could be seen between the hours of twelve and one, pacing through the orchard, with head bowed down as if in deep thought, and his hands clasped behind his back. He would walk through the deep foliage in summer and the snows in winter his footsteps always inaudible. After circling the tree a few times, he would pause beneath its outspreading branches and once more enact the process by which he had passed from life to death. One thing, however, appeared never to vary, and that was, no sooner had the body ascended into the air than it became, on the instant, invisible. Another story, this one perhaps which has more directly to do with the present sketch, is that in the deep shade of the tree, with back pressed against the trunk, could be seen on moonlit nights a man clothed in white, motionless, and to all appearance, nailed there. After many years had passed, the Globe reported how, just a few weeks before Halloween in 1884, a man rushed into a crowd of men who were discussing politics in a public square, and in a terrified voice, told them of what he had seen. He declared that while passing by the haunted orchard a few minutes before, it was then ten o'clock, he saw plainly outlined against the trunk of a tree a figure clothed in white. He thought at first that he must have been mistaken, and looked a second and a third time. Each time he looked, the figure doubled its size, until at last it seemed to be as tall as the tree itself. You can imagine the quick conference that was held there on the street corner as the crowd debated whether to go investigate. In the end, they decided they would go, but not until somebody went and fetched the blacksmith Sweeney, with the Globe explaining, Among a certain class of people, and for many generations past, it has been believed that a blacksmith can exert more influence over the spirit world than anybody else, his commands and prayers being, as it were, more particularly and specifically regarded than those of other men. And this belief it was that induced the superstitious of Parker Hill to seek out Sweeney the blacksmith before proceeding to the scene of the weird mystery. Sweeney, on being found, readily assented to make one of their number, and forthwith armed himself with a massive prayer book. Of course, besides any alleged mystical powers, a blacksmith brought the additional advantage of the upper body strength that comes along with swinging a five-pound hammer all day every day. So with Sweeney's prayer book and strong shoulders getting their backs, the reluctant mob went up Parker's Hill, moving slower and slower as they approached the orchard. They finally rounded the last clump of bushes, and saw the motionless figure of a man in white, standing with his back pressed up against an apple tree. It was at this moment that the crowd managed to push Sweeney up to the front, where the Globe reported that he shouted in a voice to which the occasion seemed to lend a sepulchral ring, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, I ask, Who are you? An oppressive silence followed, when, nothing daunted by the first repulse on the part of His Majesty the Ghost, Swinney advanced solemnly a pace nearer and repeated, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, I ask, Who are you? Still, the figure in white remained silent and motionless. As the charm is generally in the third call, Sweeney was not surprised that the ghost had deigned to reply to their first and second. Screwing up all the courage he could summon, the big man advanced to within just a few feet of the figure in white. After a long, silent pause while he gathered his wits, the blacksmith let loose with a third, in the name of the father and of the son, and of the Holy Coast, for the third time I ask, Who are you? And this time, a deep, guttural voice replied, Well, yes. Go to the devil and find out. Nerves in the party had already been stretched tighter than a guitar string. And with this, they snapped. The globe relates how the party scattered. The party waited for no more. For, turning on their heels, all rushed from the orchard led by the heroic Sweeney. Some, finding themselves outstripped by their more fortunate neighbors, began to divest themselves of their hats, coats, and shoes, in order to put as much distance as possible between them and the ghost, who was now seen to move from beneath the trees. When they reached the neighborhood of civilization, the wildest excitement prevailed. Indeed, a panic seemed to have visited that hitherto quiet spot. Mothers screamed for their children, and husbands for their wives, while the calmer of the mob fell upon their knees and sought relief in prayer. In just a few minutes, the white-clad figure came walking casually down the hill toward them, causing most of the party to scatter to the winds. The few who were left behind, either because they were brave or because they were too scared to run, soon uncovered the truth behind the ghostly figure. As he came into the circle of light cast by the gas lamps, they recognized the ghost as a neighbor, named Donovan, who worked as a plasterer. According to the Globe article, As Donovan was returning home from work that evening, clothed in his ordinary working clothes, the same being, as is customary with plasterers, made of white material, he stopped to see a certain friend. While there, he indulged a little too freely in firewater and as he started for home was feeling considerably mellow. Being in a happy-go-lucky sort of mood when he reached the neighborhood of the Haunted Orchard, he did not hesitate to cross the neglected and much-sunned precincts, in order that he might the more readily reach his home. When about three-quarters there, he stopped under a tree to light his pipe. That he might better accomplish this, he leaned his back up against it, and thus dozed off to sleep. It was in this position that he was first seen by the frightened traveler, and afterwards accosted by the inquisitive mob headed by the blacksmith. Donovan said that hearing a loud voice, he opened his eyes and gazed about him in a semi-conscious way. Upon making out that a number of men were about him, his first thoughts were that a job was being worked at his expense. It was this that decided him on answering as he did. And thus, the ghost of Parker Hill Orchard dissolved into a tipsy, harmless plasterer. The report in The Globe appeared on October 4th, 1884, just days after the incident was supposed to have happened. By this point in the 19th century, ghost stories were seen as harmless fun, Sweeney's moment of panic notwithstanding. And October was seen as the appropriate season for sharing a good ghost story. I want to go out on a more modern note. In 2015, a story on the New England Folklore blog speculated, Whatever ghosts are, Boston allegedly has haunted houses, haunted dormitories, haunted theaters, and a haunted hotel. It might also have a haunted gay bar, Jacques Cabaret in Bay Village. Since the Playland Cafe in the former Combat Zone closed in 1998, Jacques Cabaret has been the oldest gay bar in Boston. It originally opened in 1938, just a year after the Playland, and catered to a mostly straight clientele for the first couple of years. By 1940, Jacques started to attract a more gay crowd, part of a community that was just beginning to come out of the shadows. Soon, Jacques was joined in the Park Square area by the Napoleon, Marios, and the Punch Bowl. During this era, there were still raids where, as one patron recalled, they'd come in and line everyone up against the wall. The youngest cop would question us and ask for IDs and call us f***ing and other names. It was scary. If you don't have ID, they'd arrest you and put your name in the paper. Despite the danger of being outed and losing everything, Boston's gay scene continued slowly moving into the public eye. By January of 1955, Jacques and the other Bay Village clubs were on a list of 11 Boston bars that all members of the U.S. military were officially banned from entering, which must have meant that plenty of service members were patronizing the bars before the ban. In 1965, Jacques narrowly avoided being torn down for redevelopment, with one city councilor fuming, We will be better off without these incubators of homosexuality and indecency. We must uproot these joints so innocent kids won't be contaminated. Through the 1960s and early 70s, Jacques attracted a largely lesbian clientele before adding cabaret to the name and switching over to a format that featured drag shows later in the 70s. Boston Magazine quotes a period guidebook to say that by World War II, Park Square was the national headquarters for female impersonators. The proprietors of Jacques took the practice out of the shadows and put it on stage, where the shows have evolved into competitive drag reviews. Today, in non-pandemic times, there's some sort of live entertainment every night, from drag karaoke, to comedy open mic night, to full-on semi-professional drag shows. With pretty wild entertainment in what's otherwise a quiet residential neighborhood, Jocks has been fending off complaints for neighbors for as long as it's existed. However, noise complaints from nosy neighbors aren't the only problem that Jacques faces, and being Boston's oldest gay bar isn't its only claim to fame. Regulars are adamant that the club is haunted, though they can't agree on which ghost stalks the halls. Writing in his New England folklore blog, Peter Muse describes the two competing theories. After a comedian said the energy he encountered at Jacques' felt like it had a bit of an attitude, Jacques' manager suggested it might be the ghost of Sylvia Sidney, the bar's most famous performer. A drag pioneer known as the Bitch of Boston, Sidney eschewed the gentle femininity that most early drag performers cultivated and instead indulged in crude humor. Sidney died in 1998 at the age of 68 so perhaps her ghost still wants another moment in the spotlight. If you're feeling brave but don't want to summon Sydney's ghost, you can watch one of her performances on YouTube. Be warned, they're full of toilet humor, sex jokes, racial slurs, and nose-picking. Oh, and a really dirty story about Nat King Cole. I don't believe that Sydney died in a particularly traumatic way, but her ghost may not be the only one haunting Jacques. According to a rumor that has circulated for many years, the bar may also be haunted by the victims of the infamous and tragic Coconut Grove fire. Those who have been listening for a while may recall that we described the tragic 1942 fire at the Coconut Grove nightclub in episode 39. It was Boston's deadliest single disaster, killing 492 people in just seconds. The site of the Coconut Grove is just around the corner from Jacques, so Muse continues, What's the connection to Jacques? Well, according to long-standing rumors in the gay community, Jacques was used as a temporary morgue for the victims' bodies. It's not proven, but it is entirely possible. Photos show the bodies being laid out on Piedmont Street, so it's not inconceivable that the police would have used a nearby bar as well. According to this rumor, some of the victims still haunt the place where their bodies rested. And that's a theory that you can test as soon as we can go out to bars again. I think that about wraps it up for 336 years' worth of Halloween stories. To learn more about these historic hauntings, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 208. I'll have links to the sources I quoted from for each of this week's stories, as well as links to past episodes related to the stories of The Lady in Black, Peter Rugg, The Missing Man, and two episodes related to The Ghosts of Jacques. And of course, I'll have links to information about our upcoming event, our Boston Book Club picks, and the bonus episode explaining the upcoming changes to this show's format. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.